one of the, the responses to a lot of this media reporting about the quote-unquote defamation attack, the response on Twitter from some people was to start talking about whether the government was running a disinformation campaign. Um, and so there you go, you've got misinformation about disinformation about conspiracy theory. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 30th, 2020. For the past several months, Australia has been struck by massive bushfires like nothing seen before in recent memory. As the country has grappled with the spread of these unprecedented blazes, it's also grappled with the spread of falsehoods about what caused them. This week, on our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Elise Thomas, a journalist and researcher at the Australia Strategic Policy Institute's International Cyber Policy Center. Elise has been tracking misinformation and disinformation around the blazes, from the suggestion by the right-wing Australian press that arson, not climate change, is to blame for the fires, to online conspiracy theories imported in from the United States. We talked not only about the fires, but also about the global nature of the fight against mis- and disinformation online, and why we need to be cautious about focusing too much on bots in waging that fight. I also want to remind listeners about our Lawfare series on the ongoing Senate impeachment trial of President Trump. Each day, we're cutting down the full day of hearings to just an hour or two of what you need to know. No bluster and no repetition. You can find it in the podcast feed for our previous podcast on the Mueller investigation, The Report. Just search for The Report in your podcast feed and wait for new episodes every evening while the Senate impeachment trial continues. With that, it's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 502, Elise Thomas on Disinformation and the Australia Fires. Elise Thomas, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast this morning. Thanks very much for having All me. All the way from Canberra. How's the smoke levels in Canberra today? Actually, well, the smoke levels have been great since we had a freak hailstorm on Monday, um, which I think has washed most of the smoke out of the sky, but also smashed the skylight in our office and about every car in Canberra. Yeah, what a great country, right? When it's, when it's not on fire, it's being pelted with massive golf ball hailstones. They're having ash rain in Melbourne. It's flooding in Queensland. Everything is going great. Excellent. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> never a dull moment. So you're a um, freelance journalist and researcher at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Could you maybe tell us a bit about the Institute and what your work focuses on? Sure. So um, the, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, or ASPE, is a defence and um, security-focused think tank here in Australia. Um, and I work with the cyber team, um, although we will be changing our name shortly to something else, which is more descriptive of what we do. Which uh, So we sort of work on a, a range of topics, um, including cybersecurity, but we're also expanding out into sort of um, geospatial intelligence, um, information operations, um, a range of really interesting topics, which all kind of relate to technology, but are not strictly cyber. So, so that's kind of the work that I do there. Um, and as a freelance journalist, I also cover a lot of sort of um, tech and information security related topics. And how long have you been researching information operations uh, in particular and what got you interested in that? For a couple of years now, I guess, I think the first one that I published um, was actually with, uh, I did a story for the Daily Beast about uh, an information operation in Central African Republic which I found when I was sort of, I was actually looking for information about gold mines in Sudan. Um, and then I sort of ended up sideways 
into sort of looking at um, looking at a, a bunch of sort of uh, Facebook pages in the Central African Republic and started noticing a lot of commonalities and patterns and a lot of themes. Um, as you may be aware, Russia is very active in the Central African Republic now. They've got the um, the Wagner Mercenary Group is allegedly operating in Russia. Um, Russia is making a big push into Central African Republic. Um, and as part of this story for the Daily Beast, um, I investigated these Facebook pages um, and was fairly confident that they can be linked back to a, a Russian disinformation campaign there. Um, so that's kind of how I got into it. So, Elise, one of the reasons that Evelyn and I wanted to have you on the podcast was to talk about the work you've done on disinformation and misinformation surrounding the ongoing bushfires in Australia. If you could just start by giving uh, our sort of predominantly U.S.-centered audience uh, just a sense of the scale of what is happening right now um, and the general narratives that have been playing out about the government's response to the fires. Sure. Um, so the the bushfire crisis this year, Australia has um, bushfires every year, but this year is is truly unprecedented. It is enormous. It is catastrophic. We've never had anything like this. Um, and it sort of it started depending on where you want to track back to this. What was the start of this crisis? It started around sort of late September, early October, twenty nineteen, um, and sort of reached a peak or we, we hope it's the peak we still have half the fire season left to go um, but we we reached um, a peak sort of around late December early January and and that was sort of when it really started to hit the international media cycle um, and it's been interesting so over over the course of that sort of period from about about late September to now there has been a lot of misinformation a lot of sort of genuinely confused people there has also been some of what we believe is disinformation, people deliberately spreading false information about what's happening with the fires. Um, I think over that time, there's been three major conspiracy theories which have emerged. Um, the first one, I think, was the the idea that the fires are the results of um, greenies, as in sort of green climate change activists and or the um, Greens political party here in Australia, um, preventing backburning, which is a process of land management where you um, have a control burn in an area to to remove the um, the timber and the fuel for the fires. Um, so that was the first one. Um, and that came out sort of, uh, it was it was fact-checked in the, the Guardian newspaper in early November. So it was obviously active prior to that. Um, the second one was the idea that the fires are part of a conspiracy, either by the government or by sort of the quote-unquote new world order, maybe by the UN, um, to clear land from Brisbane to Melbourne to build a high-speed rail, like a, a high-speed train. And this, that sort of ties into a lot of ideas that they were using sort of lasers and directed energy weapons to start these fires. And, and that sort of echoed actually a, a Californian conspiracy theory from, uh, I think, 2018, but we can come back to that if you want. And the, the final one and the one that probably most of uh, your listeners have heard the most about um, is that the fires are the result of arson. Um, and I think actually, I think it's an important and interesting point that all of these conspiracy theories relate to the start of the fires, to what started the fires, which is not actually the significant point because Australia has fires every year, right? The significant point about these fires is that they got so huge, so fast, so powerful, and that is about climate change. That is about the, the fundamentally different nature of the environment that these fires are starting in. Um, so having these conspiracy theories which fixate on how the fires started it's not just misinformation, it's also misdirection. We're not talking about the real problem. 
um, which I think is an interesting point. Um, I, I think the other interesting commonality between all of these conspiracy theories is that they all have a villain. Like it, it's a very simple narrative that there is there is a person or there is a group who is responsible for causing this. And I think that's one of the things that comes out quite often in conspiracy theories. It, they present a, a simplified and really appealing narrative where there is a bad person or a bad group who has done the bad thing. Um, and if we can only get rid of that, then the problem will be solved. And I think that's the appeal of conspiracy theories for at least most of the public. It was, it was sort of another point that I wanted to make about these three conspiracy theories. Um, I think the first two are the, the first two, the ones that emerged earliest before that sort of December, January period when it really hit the international media. Um, and those are the ideas that it was the result of the Greenies um, preventing backburning and that it was part of this conspiracy to clear land for high speed rail. I think those two are more native to Australia. Though I think those are conspiracy theories. For example, the, the idea of sort of the greenies are stopping backburning. That's something that chimes, I think, with a certain part of the Australian audience, but doesn't necessarily chime with an international audience who doesn't care very much about Australian land management practices. Um, whereas I think the, the arson narrative, which is the one that has really been picked up by the international media and particularly by the fringe right-wing media, I think that one appears universal in a sense it's very easy to understand arson whereas it's not so easy to understand like the intricacies of Australian land management policy if that makes sense and I think that's why that is the one that really took off. So there's a there's a lot to unpack there to sort of set the stage can you give a sense of what the political context is you know you you hint that this is happening in a context where a lot of Australians are nervous about climate change um and maybe looking for an easy villain what has the government's response been and to what extent is sort of uh long running climate denialism playing a part in this Yeah so that's a really significant part so in the Australian context, we've sort of the the concept of climate change has become extremely politicised. Um, our current Prime Minister Scott Morrison actually several years ago um, brought a lump of coal into Parliament and sort of held it up to sort of um, to mock those who were sort of concerned about climate change. So that that's the man who's currently in charge of the response to these fires. He also went on holiday to Hawaii in the middle of the crisis. Um, Yes, you do have to put what is happening now in, in the information environment around these bushfires in the context of a very long history of the politicisation of climate change and um, climate denialism from the Liberal and National Parties, the coalition which is currently in power. Um, you also, I think, have to put it in the context of the Murdoch media, um, which are incredibly dominant in the Australian media landscape and although they are, are now saying that they never denied climate change, they do have a long history of climate denialism, and that's a significant part of this as well. Um, I, I don't want to give the Australian mainstream media a pass on this because there has been a lot of misinformation being put out in the Australian mainstream media as well, despite the best efforts of, of um, some very responsible journalists. That's all fantastic stage setting. Thanks, Elise. And i got to say, you know, I would have liked for... A the excuse for an Australian-focused podcast uh, to have been either happier or a little bit more uh, complimentary. But um, yes, that image of Scott Morrison holding up the, the lump of coal in Parliament is is certainly iconic. Pivoting back to the social media operations then, can you give us a sense of the scale of these operations? You mentioned three significant narratives that are playing out. How big are they? Or is it just the fact that in sort of any kind of crisis like this, there are going to be disinformation narratives playing out? Um, and 
what kind of responses have there been to those disinformation campaigns? Well, so I think one of the things that we need to be clear about, and maybe this is where we need sort of um, as a, a discipline or whatever sort of the study of, of information operations is, maybe we need more nuanced language. Um, I think referring to it as a campaign or referring to it as an operation or as some of the media has called it an attack, I think that's quite misleading. I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, I don't think there's any sort of coordinated systemic attempts to sort of, well, I think it's it's too simple to sort of paint it as a campaign or an attack. I think what's happened is that this is the information ecosystem that we all swim in now. And the the issue of the Australian fires, because it is um, because it has become now an international media talking point, um, and because it is wrapped up in the issue of climate change, which has become incredibly politicised all around the world, um, but especially in the US and especially in Australia. Um, I think because of those issues, um, the Australian fires have fed into this ecosystem of disinformation and misinformation and conspiracy theories, um, much of which is rooted in the US. Um, and so what has happened, particularly after that December, January period where it really, the, the Australian fires really leapt onto the international stage. Um, we started having um, celebrities talk about it. We started having US politicians talk about it, having UK politicians talk about it. Some of the UK politicians have repeated the arson line, by the way. And as that happened, they got, it, it got wrapped up into this reactive ecosystem of disinformation. So I, I don't think it's a campaign. I think this is, um, I think we need a better and more nuanced language for talking about this kind of stuff. That's a really helpful point and um, a, a really great distinction. Can I ask you then, do you think that social media, I mean, I suppose this is speculative, but do you think it has any causal relationship to the spread of these narratives or is it just more sort of reflective and bringing to light the things that people uh, are already sort of believing i guess again it's it's speculative but the fact that it's not really an attack or a campaign um suggests that it might just be more sort of bringing to the surface things that people are already saying and thinking look i think that's a really complicated question and we need more research to answer it directly i i guess uh my instinct is that it's amplifying things that are out there and it's bringing people it's bringing in people who wouldn't otherwise be in this sort of conspiracy disinformation world I think one of the interesting things um, is the, the point I mentioned earlier about the, the second conspiracy theory, the one about uh, land clearing, that the fires have been deliberately lit to clear land for a high-speed rail um, down the coast of Australia from Brisbane to Melbourne. That actually echoes a similar conspiracy theory about the Californian wildfires in, I think, 2018, which was the same idea that they've been lit in order to try and clear land for high-speed rail. Um, and I think that is a, a really interesting echo. I haven't got any evidence at this stage that those two are directly related, but I think it's a really interesting echo and it wouldn't surprise me if they're related. So actually, and, and actually with that theory, the actually, actually the first time that I heard about it was in an Uber on um, Boxing Day. Um, and this, this guy in the, the, the Uber driver was telling me about this conspiracy theory and he was absolutely convinced that he had read it on The Guardian's website. And I was sort of gently trying to say, no, no, mate, I, I don't think you did. I don't think you did. Um, but he was absolutely convinced. Um, and it's so, it, it's interesting um, the ways in which I, I think this information is getting to people via social media. I suspect what happened is happened with this gentleman um, is that what he, he may have seen, there was a Facebook post going around that was sharing 
a Guardian article about the high-speed rail, and then the conspiracy theory was in the comment on the Facebook post. And I suspect that's what this gentleman saw, but in his memory, he'd seen it on the Guardian website. Um, so I think that the role of social media in spreading these conspiracy theories is really complicated. I don't think it's causal, but I certainly think it's contributing. That's fascinating. And crucial follow-up here, what rating did you give him? Uh, I gave him a four. (laughs) (laughs) He drove quite well. (laughs) So one of the things that the coverage of the fire misinformation focused on was the level of bot activity. And you've written about how that focus might be a little bit misplaced. Could you explain that? Sure. Um, So what happened was that there was a a study released by the Queensland University of Technology, um, which had used a tool called Bot or Not, which is a a tool which looks at a number of factors and makes an educated guess about whether a a Twitter account is or isn't a bot. Um, And they'd use that tool to look at 315 accounts that have been tweeting about a specific hashtag, the hashtag ArsonEmergency. Um, And what they'd found was that about a third of the accounts tweeting about this hashtag were determined by this tool, bot or not, to be bots. Uh, The findings of that study were picked up in the local media and international media, um, and there was a lot of coverage about sort of a disinformation operation or a disinformation attack on Australia. Um, This idea that sort of there was this enormous coordinated attack happening in relation to the Australian fires. Um, And the point that I sort of wanted to draw out of that is that we need to be careful when when we put out, when as researchers, for example, when we put out research, and this is not intended as criticism of the QUT researchers, but when we put out research like this, it's really important to put it in context, particularly um, if we're communicating it to journalists, and I, this is a journalist myself, um, it's, it's really important to put it in context and to explain um, exactly, exactly what it shows and what it doesn't show. So, for example, the fact that uh, bot or not determined that about a third of these 315 accounts on this specific hashtag were showing signs of being automated um, is not in itself indication of a disinformation attack. Um, I think we need to sort of unpick the idea that everything that is a bot is also disinformation. That's not true. There you know, may be some, some correlations there, but it's not necessarily true that just because there are bots, there's disinformation. So that's one thing to, to draw out. Um, the other thing is that uh, to automated tools like bot or not, which look at a range of factors and then give you essentially an educated guess about whether that account is or isn't a bot, they work better in some contexts than in others. So, for example, one of the factors that tools like this often look at is the age of the account. Um, and they generally sort of look at it and say, okay, if it's a newer account, it's more likely to be a bot. If it's an older account, it's more likely to be a person. Um, that may be true, generally speaking, but for example, in the context of something like the Australian bushfires, that dynamic could actually be reversed. You could have a lot of new legitimate users signing up to Twitter because they want to access information about the fires. So they'll have very new accounts. Um, and you could also have older bot accounts which have been bought and repurposed for example. So um, all of that will affect the accuracy of the tool in determining whether or not that behaviour is automated. Um, And the other thing, of course, is is just that 315 accounts on one hashtag is a very small sample. Um, So all of those things, I think it's important to draw out and particularly as researchers to contextualise for the media so that they understand exactly what the study is saying and don't sort of go off and start spreading misinformation about disinformation, you know. So um, one of the the responses to a lot of this media reporting about the quote-unquote disinformation attack, the response on Twitter from some people was to start talking about whether the government was running a disinformation campaign. 
Um, and so there you go, you've got misinformation about disinformation about conspiracy theories. So um, it's, yeah, it's, it's really important to be very clear, I think, as researchers. That's kind of a, a snake eating its own tail situation. So I'd, I'd love to return to the international aspect of this. You, you said that the disinformation about the fires was neither entirely homegrown nor totally targeted at Australia, but there was this UK-American aspect. Can you go more into that? Sure. Um, so as I said, what happened around sort of December, January, when the, the fire crisis started to really reach its peak is that it began to be picked up very significantly in the international media. Um, particularly in, in the US, we had a lot of celebrities, a lot of politicians making comments, people like um, Greta Thunberg, people like Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez, who are just irresistible to fringe right-wing figures. You know, as soon as, as people who are sort of in, in that sort of sector make any kind of comments, the, the fringe right-wing pounces. And that is what happened with the fires. Um, and so we had, I think, I think we had a, a lot of sort of fringe right-wing US outlets starting to quote unquote report on or write sort of opinion pieces about what started the fires with, with no particular background or knowledge um, of what was actually happening. I think the interesting point about that from a, a disinformation perspective is that these were I very much get the sense these sort of fringe right-wing medias, the conspiracy theories, the, um, all of the different players who are sort of involved here, they are talking in their own corners to their own audiences. They're not talking to Australians. But because we are all collapsed in together on social media, it, that is washing back onto Australian audiences. And so you get this sort of interesting feedback loop between um, the Infowars and the Zero Hedges and, and Australian audiences who wouldn't normally be exposed to that kind of content, which I, I think is interesting and also quite damaging because Infowars has no particular stake in what happens in the fires in Australia. They don't have any, any incentive to report responsibly. Um, but the impacts of the, the conspiracy theories that are being spread by these far-right and fringe-right and conspiracy websites, the impact of those will come back onto Australians and will affect the way Australians see and understand what has happened here and may also potentially affect the kind of policies that are adopted in the future. So I, it is really significant. That's fascinating. So would it be fair to say then that the kind of prominence of fringy American media has sort of poisoned Australian discourse then? I mean, I don't want to exaggerate the extent to which that's the case. Obviously, there's, you know, the Australian political situation, the prominence of the Murdoch press plays a role, but it does kind of seem like America is patient zero <laughs> in a way when it comes to Infowars. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say poisoned uh, in that I, I think we were doing a pretty good job of poisoning ourselves. Um, but I, uh, we, I think the, the interesting thing is in the US, you have this enormous ecosystem of fringe right-wing media, which has um, resources and reach and capability that we just don't have here in Australia and that we're not really used to in the same sorts of ways. So we do have, um, in Australia, we do have a certain percentage of conspiracy theorists, um, sort of the, the anti-vaxxers, which are shading into the anti-5Gers, which are shading into sort of the New World Order, the Agenda 21, those kind of, that, that kind of lot. Um, and we do have sort of the talkback radio hosts who sort of do speak to uh, a fringy right-wing element. Um, so we do have shades of what you have in the US, but it's nothing like as it's nothing like as powerful. It's nothing like as diverse. It's nothing like as well monetized. Um, and so it has been, I think, 
really damaging to the discourse in Australia to have that fire hose of disinformation and conspiracy theories coming from the US and washing back onto Australia because we are all on social media together. So one of the things that you're emphasising there is the international nature of the disinformation around Australian fires. And so I'd love to pivot to some of your other work that also um, shows how this truly is a global and international stage and problem. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about an investigation that you did with Bellingcat uh, to do with a 2019 operation in Indonesia. Sure. Um, So this was a a research project that I did with Ben Strick, who works for BBC and also does some stuff with Bellingcat. Um, And so what Ben did initially was he used he used a tool to do a a network analysis of a number of Twitter accounts that were sort of tweeting about West Papua. Um, As your your listeners may be aware, West Papua is uh, an area of Indonesia where there is a strong push for independence from some parts of the community. Um, and Indonesia has been, the Indonesian security forces have been involved in pretty brutal crackdowns in that community, particularly in 2019. And so what Ben found was he found a number of accounts linked to sort of uh, Twitter accounts that were linking to Facebook accounts, which were linking to websites. It was sort of a whole little disinformation network, which were which was designed to promote positive news about what was happening in West Papua um, and about sort of the the relationship between the Indonesian government and the people in West Papua to promote this very falsely positive picture of what was happening there. Um, And so Ben did this uh, automated network analysis and he published it on Bellingcat. um, And I'd sort of um, been in touch with Ben about some other investigations in the past. um, And I got in touch with him about this one and said, hey, do you want to see if we can figure out who is behind this? Um, And so Ben and I worked together to sort of look at a range of clues across social media, across the websites, um, things like Google Analytics, tracking IDs, things like resumes on LinkedIn and so on, um, and and sort of website records, that kind of thing, to um, figure out who was behind this campaign. Um, And we tracked it back to a consultancy, a communications consultancy, quote unquote, um, in Jakarta in Indonesia um, called Insight ID. Um, and then once we were very confident in our attribution of this campaign to Inside ID, we found sort of a, a range of different pieces of evidence connecting it back to either the company or to individuals related to the company. After we had sort of locked all that down and we'd sort of done, done our, our good work in um, archiving absolutely everything, screenshotting absolutely everything, then the BBC approached Inside ID for comment um, and although initially I think Inside ID was unwilling to talk to the BBC um, eventually they basically came out and said that they were responsible for this campaign. So so that's sort of the background to that campaign. When Ben published his initial analysis of the Twitter network um, Twitter obviously then went in and took down all those accounts and part of the way that I got involved is I actually read Ben's piece about a week after after it had been published um, sorry, Ben, I was very busy. <laughs> uh, I read it about a week later and I went out and sort of just started to have a look around and I found the second generation of a lot of these accounts. So they've been taken down. And then a few days later, this this company, who we now know is Inside ID, had come and recreated them and they'd pop back up. And that's sort of how I, I got uh, initially in, interested in sort of trying to figure out who was being so persistent in doing this. And so what happened to those second generation accounts? They also got busted when we published the second um, report. 
there was a third generation very briefly, but I think there was a third generation very briefly in the lull between um, when Insight ID was approached by the BBC and when they it came out and admitted it was them. So they, they tried to persist for a few days, but then the third generation also got axed. I haven't found a fourth yet. So it really sounds like these companies should be uh, giving you a, a pay packet or something. It sounds like you're doing uh, vigilante um, work. How often is that the case that you publish uh, work and then the social media companies uh, take action? I guess you can't see a causative relationship between it, but sort of subsequently. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, generally speaking, if if the accounts that we're looking at are a violation of the terms of service, um, and sometimes they aren't, you know, like you might be looking at sort of, you know, spreading misinformation if, if it's not an intentional thing. And this is always the, the difficult question of intent and the, dif- the sort of distinction between disinformation and misinformation. Um, but spreading misinformation is not a violation of terms of service. Spreading conspiracy theories, not a violation of terms of service. They are significant from our perspective as researchers, as people who are interested in the, the quality of civil discourse and sort of um, discussion on social media. But they're not necessarily things that platforms would take down. So it depends if uh, if what we publish shows a clear violation of terms of service, then generally speaking, the platforms will take it down. Sometimes that isn't the case. And so how often is it that the platforms just don't do anything at all? I, I wouldn't be able to give you like a clear percentage of the number of times. There is actually sort of a, another point that I wanted to make, which is that uh, in, in relation to sort of the misinformation and disinformation around the Australian fires, which is that this is going to be a feature of every crisis in the future, every major international crisis. So it's already starting up around the coronavirus in China. The next ecological disaster we have, it's going to be the same thing. Um, and so we need to find we need to find a more nuanced language for talking about it. We need to not use words like campaign or attack or operation, which imply uh, agency, because in some cases it's going to be really, really difficult to define who the agent is, there may not be an agent. So I think we need to develop more nuanced language. Um, but I also think emergency response authorities, health authorities, um, food security authorities are going to have to find better ways of dealing with misinformation and disinformation. Um, and that's that's not a new thing. Um, I, so I've previously worked for the UN Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Um, And so misinformation, for example, around um, polio vaccines in places like Afghanistan and Pakistan, health workers have been murdered in relation to conspiracy theories about polio vaccines. Um, And what we're seeing now on the internet is just the supercharging of that old dynamic of misinformation, disinformation about crises. Um, And we need to understand and find better ways to respond to that. Yeah, I'd love to hear you say more about the situation in in China. So listeners will probably have seen that the Chinese officials have now entirely quarantined off the city where this outbreak seems to have begun. Um, So at least what what kind of misinformation, disinformation have you seen regarding that? In terms of what's on the what's sort of taking place on the international stage in terms of conspiracy theories, there's a lot of discussion about it being some form of a bioweapon um, uh, and sort of who is responsible for the bioweapon sort of changes depending on who's spreading the theory. So um, it's the same thing of sort of the the Agenda 21 conspiracy theorists think it's the UN or like a, a cabal of global elites. People, some of the Hong Kong protesters think it's a bioweapon being tested by the Chinese government in order to 
to take out the Hong Kong protesters. Um, some people in China seem to think that it is the US government allegedly um, spreading a bioweapon in China. Um, and I think the interesting thing about that actually is the ways in which it echoes um, the conspiracy theories in the Australian fires in, the, in that it presents a really neat narrative which has a villain. And I, I think that's sort of, I suspect that may be a common feature that we start to see as we, as sort of um, disinformation conspiracy theories around crises, uh, natural crises, health crises, as that spreads into um, just, just these really complex unfolding crises, um, as that spreads onto social media, I think the, the desire for simplicity is going to drive more and more people into believing these conspiracy theories, which present them with a neat narrative, which has a villain um, who is responsible for what's happened. If I can pivot us back to the relationship between the research that you do and platforms and their responses, one of the things that you have talked about or I've, I've read you saying is that sometimes platform responses can make your job a lot harder because when they take the information campaigns down, you lose your data set. So what do you think that platforms could be doing better in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. And this is uh, – Twitter has been – very good, I think, about sort of sharing as much data as they possibly can. Um, YouTube, I, I'm not actually aware that they share much in the way of data from their takedowns. Um, and the fact that I'm not aware of it probably suggests that they don't. Um, although I haven't done, I haven't personally done many investigations into YouTube. It's a platform that I definitely want to be looking at much more. Facebook releases a certain amount of information, but they don't give you anything like the level of detail that you can get from the actual page. Um, they don't give you enough, I think, that you could sort of pivot on to to continue the investigation after they've taken the pages down. And so that's sort of this constant issue for researchers in this space. Another issue is that as the platforms make changes to protect user privacy, um, that also creates issues for disinformation researchers, for open source investigators. Um, and this is this is where the, the privacy advocate in me comes up, uh, it comes into conflict with the researcher and the journalist. Um, because, uh, so for example, uh, last year, Facebook made a number of changes to graph search, which was sort of a way of um, creating really granular searches on Facebook for specific individuals, for specific details, which was tremendously useful. Um, it was a really, uh, like I, the, I spoke earlier about the investigation I did into the um, disinformation in Central African Republic. I relied so heavily on graph search for that investigation. It was absolutely crucial and I don't think I could have done it without graph search. Um, and so Facebook made a number of changes to the way graph search works um, in 2019. Um, and there are still ways of doing these searches, but they are much more complicated. They're more limited. It's harder to do. And, you know, as I said, this is where the privacy, the privacy advocate in me is sort of cheering this on. Um, but as a, as a journalist, as an investigator, um, that does pose some significant barriers. So, so what, what happened with those changes is that Facebook made it harder for other people to find information on the platform. Facebook didn't make it harder for Facebook to find information on the platform. Um, so the sort of it's not that the, the user has more privacy from Facebook, it's just that the user has more privacy from people who are looking for information about them on Facebook. And that may protect a lot of individuals who are sort of just normal users on Facebook, but it also protects people who are using Facebook for things like um, distributing malware or for people who are using Facebook for organized crime, which does take place on Facebook. So that's sort of the, the push and pull of um, sort of the sharing of data on social media. Yeah, that's such a great point. 
And something I think about a lot as well is that the incentives for transparency are kind of all wrong. Like you mentioned the example of the Hong Kong disinformation campaigns before and how Twitter released a data set and uh, Facebook released some examples and YouTube released basically nothing. Um, But then the news cycle for the next couple of days was about the mistakes in Twitter's data set. And I I think actually I remember reading you about that saying there's a lot of chaff in this wheat, which, you know, it's really interesting because Twitter had done the right thing there but uh, then it opens itself up to criticism. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is a really unfair dynamic, right, in that the, the social media platforms who give nothing get to more or less skate by the social media platforms who try to do the right thing then get sort of bashed over the head for not getting it perfect. So, I mean, it, yeah, you're, you're totally right. That is a real issue. So to, to close on a kind of forward-looking note, I'm curious, you know, if you, if you had one big ask uh, to the platforms to, to sort of stop their services being gamed and susceptible to this kind of activity, what would you ask for? I think they need to use more humans. So one of the, the stories that I did in 2019, I did a story for foreign policy um, where I was looking at Myanmar, where, as I'm sure some of your listeners are aware, Facebook played a really significant role in the the genocide against the Rohingya. Um, And earlier in 2019, Facebook declared that it was sort of going to boot a bunch of um, Myanmar armed groups off its platform, um, including uh, a group called the Arakan Army. And the Arakan Army is a really interesting group for a range of reasons. They're running a very significant information slash influence slash marketing campaign, um, including on Facebook. And so what I found when I was doing this research for this foreign policy piece is that it was laughably easy to find Arakan Army accounts, uh, Arakan Army pages, Arakan Army groups all across Facebook. And it was one of those things where, like, it's hard to believe that Facebook, Facebook set this line for itself and then it was completely failing to meet it. Um, and it's one of those things that it was so easy to find them. You're like, no, no one has even typed Arakan Army into the search bar at Facebook. Otherwise, they would have found all of these accounts. I don't know the inner workings of why that happened, um, but I think that is an indication. There need to be more humans involved in looking for these kind of abuses of the platform, I think. All right, let's leave it there. Elise, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. This was fun. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's new miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed and new episodes every Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Elise Thomas. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Jacob Schultz, and our producer is Jen Pache Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever podcasting app you use. And as always, thanks for listening.